0: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the first Slate Spoiler Special of 2012. Joining me in the Slate Studios is John Swansberg.
1: Good morning.
0: Hello, John. You're the culture editor for Slate. I am. And uh, you are joining me to talk about Haywire, the new Steven Soderbergh action thriller, would you call it?
1: Uh, yeah, action thriller.
0: So Steven Soderbergh, I guess, has this this expression one for me, one for them, having to do with his incredibly prolific career and how he essentially makes a movie to make money, one of his Ocean's Eleven movies or, or, or something something big budget, an action type movie, and then makes something for himself, which can get as weird as his Kafka movie starring Jeremy Irons,
1: right, or, or Bubble, um, where he shot a movie all in digital and um, used non actors, and uh, like the Girlfriend Experience, the right,
0: Girlfriend the, Experience. The, the recent movie he made starring the, the porn star Sasha Grey, right. So would you consider this a one for him or a one? For everybody else,
1: uh, it's weird. I feel like this one, in a way, straddles the line because it feels um, slightly low budget in, in some ways, and, and or though or maybe it's more that just that it's kind of it felt sort of slapdash. Um, but it also clear it's an action movie. It's it's it seems to be made to be a crowd pleaser. So in that sense, it feels like um, a kind of more of a Hollywood style movie. But it doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't feel. It's not nearly as like glitzy or star studded or slick as the Ocean's movies. Say. Yeah,
0: there's something there's something very odd about this movie's approach that I can't figure out whether it's deliberate or not. I feel like if if and when I say this in my review, defenders of Soderbergh in this movie are going to pop up and say, "But all that was deliberate." Right. And I, I can't be sure that they weren't right because I feel like he's so knowledgeable about film, he's such a sophisticated filmmaker in terms of the techniques he can master and the different voices he can take on and kind of what a shapeshifter he is that you know people can just say, "Well, he's trying to make a schlocky action blockbuster," but to me, this was just a little bit too schlocky below the line. Well, the big stick of this movie that you have to know about going in is that it stars this woman and Gina Carano, who's a mixed martial arts star and has never acted before. So like Sasha Gray, the porn star in in Girlfriend Experience, he's building a movie around this beautiful, mysterious non-actor who doesn't necessarily have the thespian chops to to carry it off.
1: Well, Sasha Gray had acted before, just in a different style of movie. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's true. It's actually not even analogous because Sasha Gray had obviously been in front of a camera. Right. In front front of a camera in a much more vulnerable state than we even see her in the Girlfriend Experience. Right,
1: right. Gina Carano is is truly someone who's never acted, and I felt like it really... It really showed. I, I felt like she was her, – her lack of experience and her ina, inability to kind of hold a scene really was a drag on the movie. And I had – just to go back to what you were saying before, I had the same exact reaction to you, which was that I was sitting in the movie theater thinking to myself and this was – also I was distracted from the action and the uh, complicated plot by these thoughts. I was wondering, is this a joke that I'm not getting? Like is there – or is Soderbergh – mimicking something or or sort of taking on a style that I don't really understand or know well enough to get why this is good I you know I was sitting in a, in a room of film critics wondering like I wonder if the people next to me are enjoying this on a different level because they realize what Soderbergh's doing and I'm sitting here not realizing what he's doing and just watching a movie that feels like just not very well put together and not very engaging and not full of the good performances that I, I often associate with Soderbergh movies, even Soderbergh movies that are shot with, um, with actors who are not necessarily great actors. I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is a Soderbergh movie, Out of Sight, and I've never seen Jennifer Lopez uh, act the way she did in, in that movie. I think he's often very good at teasing out good performances from uh, people you wouldn't expect them to come from, but I was totally distracted throughout the movie by Carano's lack of ability.
0: Right. I mean, there's just a huge gulf between her physical abilities and her kind of her her mental, emotional telegraphing abilities, right? right? Like when when it's her body in action, she's pretty amazing. And it is great, especially in the early scenes when suddenly, you know, to your complete surprise, you know, in walks a stranger and suddenly there's a big slugging match and she is completely holding her own. She's a really big, powerful woman and she's really beautiful and has an incredible body, right? Right. And not the kind of body you usually see on screen, like really, really muscular and, 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 and large, right? Right but that to me that kind of wore on me given the fact that anytime we're looking at her face or listening to her voice things are just not that interesting
1: yeah and there's actually more of this movie that that um this movie spends more time with her face and her emotions than I than I maybe expected it to. When I when I read about it and I f- you know learned about the idea of of casting this um, person who wasn't an actor but was an MMA star, I sort of assumed it would be more chock full of action. But there are actually a good number of scenes where we're kind of looking at her face or where she's at a, a kind of weird dinner party and trying to act like she's someone she's not. And you know th- there are a lot of there's a lot of downtime where she's not kicking ass. And those scenes are you know don't sort of, don't play to her strengths by any means.
0: Yeah, I think the idea is supposed to be that she's. The- this sort of Steve McQueen like you know impassive mask behind which all these complicated things are going on, but she's just not charismatic enough to pull those off. I mean, for all I know, she is having a complex inner life behind that right. face, but it is just not it's not coming through. It's yeah. still to watch.
1: Impassive is a is sort of a euphemistic way of saying that she's not not very good at acting, I think. But you know, that, that would be the I think the charitable way of describing it. So should we talk should we briefly talk about, about the plot?
0: Yeah, let's try to get through the story. <laughs> I, I, I'm not even sure that I can it doesn't really matter if you follow every detail of the story, but um but it is sort of fun to try to find your way through this complicated plot, because the movie itself at times makes a joke out of, you know, how complicated this, uh, this whole international murder rescue plot is, and, and and how nobody in the movie seems to know what's going on.
1: Right. So so I saw the movie a week before you did, and I find myself really grappling with, with the details and trying to figure out what, remember what happened, but let me see if I can nail the basics. So Gina Carano plays a woman named Mallory, who's sort of a, she's sort of a black ops, uh, specialist, you know she's a she's essentially an assassin, like a CIA-style assassin uh, who can be dispatched into uh, difficult situations to either kill someone or maybe you know uh, extricate someone who's been taken hostage. But she doesn't work for the U.S. government; she works for a private contractor, uh, and the the her boss is Ewan McGregor, uh, and he sort of runs this kind of small uh, black ops private uh, contracting company that specializes in this kind of extraction and assassination. Uh, and their company is hired by Michael Douglas, who I believe works for the U.S. government, although we don't have any sense of what branch, whether he's works for the CIA or some other um, or the Department of Defense. Right? There's
0: or, no contextualization of who he is, but he sits in front of a flag all the time. <laughs> exactly. So we know he's in Washington That's the somewhere. only tip.
1: Yeah, he sits in front of a flag. For all we know, he's a private guy who just likes flags. But he, <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that he works for the government. The government hires... Um, Hires ewan McGregor's firm to uh, to do a mission, and they specifically ask for Mallory to do it. And I've n- I don't know why that was because they knew she was good, or for some other reason. But they remember that scene where he's like, "We really want Mallory to do it," and, and that sort of was one detail the, among many that I didn't quite ever. Oh, I grasp. thought it was
0: just basically this kind of superhero argument, like we want her because she's the best and yeah, she's the only one who can
1: as do that. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, for, at the beginning, I thought maybe they wanted to frame her or they felt like she was easily – she was more expendable than someone else. I don't know. Uh, I was I was maybe overthinking it. Um, but so do you want to try to describe what the mission actually is? Because that, that yeah, even Yeah, it seems like if
0: I grasped it right. So Antonio Banderas, who has this kind of big gray beard in this part – I actually think Antonio Banderas is really funny in this small part that he has. But yeah. he's this evil... And he looks great in a beard. Yeah, he does. He looks fantastic. At yeah. first, it was hard to tell that it was him. He does shave it later on. So Banderas contracts Ewan McGregor. And Michael Douglas together in a government black ops combined operation to kidnap this uh, dissident Chinese journalist, right? And there's a big action scene at the beginning where this guy is captured in Barcelona. And what we find out much later at the very end of the movie is the big reveal is that he actually wanted to kill the journalist all along. But I don't think I think because Mallory's a good person, right? She wants to right. work for the good guys. They couldn't have gotten her to just kill someone for hire. Right. So instead, they disguise it as we're trying to, to, to save this guy from captivity. She does the big operation. And then how does the Chinese journalist die? He dies. He dies later. In the later. course of the
1: Operation? No, no. Remember, they they successfully extract him and hand him over. I think, although I don't, I think this is, happens off screen. They hand him over to you know whoever, like Banderas's people, assuming that, that they're going to liberate this, this Chinese uh, dissident journalist. But later, when um, uh, essentially after f- after that, um, either Banderas or uh, McGregor decides they need to, they basically need to kill. Mallory? Is that just
0: because she knows too much? I, I don't know why I, I they decide to go. I don't in.
1: know other yeah, I think it must be that she knows too much. They decide that having participated in that in that uh, dirty deal, like she needs to go. So they set up this second kind of elaborate thing where she thinks she's just going on a sort of relatively simple mission to England, I think, um, to pose as the uh, girlfriend of this of this other guy who this other kind of black ops guy who and mcgregor is trying to woo to join who's his played company, by michael fassbender who's by right? michael fassbender and, it, and when she, they go to sort of like a, a country house in in britain for a for a cocktail party and she finds the dissident journalist like in the stables with a bullet through his head remember
0: right so, so then she discovers the truth of her of her prior operation and starts to suspect that this whole michael fassbender setup is essentially just a way to get her out of the way
1: and also i think i i, I might not i might be wrong about this but i think that the the McGregor plot or plan was to kill Mallory and frame her for the murder of the Chinese dissident because when she finds him, he's grasping a brooch that is the same brooch that uh, McGregor has given her to wear on her So the Fassbender lapel. knows
0: who she is. Yeah. Right? So
1: I thought that that was what that – meant, but it was like one of those, one of these details in there, and there are several in the, in the movie that they go by so fast that you don't, you don't really have time to process what they mean, uh, exactly. I, I like sort of figured that out like four scenes after it was, <laughs> it had already passed and it kind of didn't matter.
0: Yeah, that brooch detail didn't occur to me. But, but of course, in the course of the movie, none of this is clear now. I mean, part of the reason we're having trouble putting it together is that while it's all unfolding, all this happening is a lot of action in different cities, and you don't get quite what's tying it all together. Right. And then when necessary, somebody launches into a clumsy exposition of this that then turns into an extended flashback. That happens a couple different times. During right. The movie. And as
1: you said before, I mean, there are, this is punctuated by moments of, of excitement. So, you know, Mallory kind of puts it together over the course of the uh, dinner uh, party or whatever it is in, in the country house in Britain that she's, she is the target for that mission. That McGregor is going, to, or sorry, that uh, Fassbender is going to take her out. So then they have this like protracted fight. In I will hotel say that's room. my
0: favorite action scene in the that movie when Michael great. Fassbender and her have it out in the hotel room after having posed essentially as husband and wife or boyfriend right. and girlfriend all day. It's great because it's sort of a big joke on the way that fight scenes kind of mimic sex scenes, right? And right. that a fight between a man and woman can also be this kind of crazy erotic battle. And of course they're both very sexy people. Yeah. So so that's actually a really great isolated scene, even though we essentially have no idea who these characters are or what's going on.
1: Right. But for the dead body that the maid finds the next day in that hotel room, it might have just looked like crazy sex had happened in that hotel room with all the, like, broken glass and, like, you know, bedding everywhere. Uh, that, that fight scene was the best. Although I'd like to say that although the fight scenes are great— there are other sort of action scenes in this movie that I thought were not as great. And it's not I don't think it's right to say that sort of the exposition scenes or the scenes where is not fighting are bad and the action scenes are good. There are actually some action scenes that I thought were kind of goofy. And the one that really stuck in my craw was shortly after she uh, dispenses with Fassbender, she's kind of on the run from, she knows she's going to be followed. Oh, the
0: rooftop chase, right? Yes, it a
1: rooftop chase. So it's like, she basically is cornered by I guess the Irish, uh, like an Irish, series of Irish SWAT teams. are, for like, 40 police officers in, like, full-on, you know, SWAT gear kind of trying to hunt her down. And she's sort of running around the streets of Dublin. And I guess the Punch house was in Ireland. So anyway, she's in Dublin, and she's, she's being chased. And they basically have her cornered. She goes upstairs in a building. She makes her way onto the roof. She's, like, running around the rooftop. She, does, she sort of fights a couple guys. And you're like, how's she going to escape? How's she going to escape? Ultimately, she, like, makes her way down into a garage where she finds a car. And inside the car is a green hooded sweatshirt that says Trinity on it. Now, what, what this what this you know international uh, mass, you know Black Ops mastermind does is she dons said hoodie, puts the hood up. Walks out into the street and is not recognized by like four police officers who see her. And I was,
0: knew you were going to have a problem with that because before I saw the movie, you just said, "Oh God, there's a detail involving a green hoodie that is just so <laughs> bogus." And so I was waiting the whole time. It doesn't for the make green any
1: hoodie. sense. Like you know, if the, all she needed was a sweatshirt to escape, meanwhile she's like broken the necks of like four police officers. She's been running around, you know, playing this cat and mouse game with all these SWAT teams, and then you know, all she lacked was the appropriate uh, you know sweatwear, and, and you know, she makes her escape, which is like such a letdown after that. that that extended... It was a pretty long chase scene.
0: No, you're right. It was almost as if the the, the screenwriter just gave up on getting her out of it and just said, you know, let's just pick the most random disguise possible. I mean, she might as well have just... A pillowcase over her head would have been a better disguise. I
1: guess if you wanted to be... Again, if you wanted to be charitable, you could say, well, like, maybe they, you know, once she puts a sweatshirt on, she does just look like this, you know, woman who's, like, out for her job. Did they
0: know they were chasing a woman the whole time?
1: I thought thought they did. I mean, but it wasn't... You could have played that up, like, oh, she looks like a woman. She can't, you know, can't possibly be the the person we're after. But Really it was just sort of like, oh, that person with the, you know, that person wearing a hoodie. You know, let's not pay attention to her. We're looking for a woman who's not wearing. A hoodie. <laughs> How could she have access to a hoodie? It, it didn't make any sense at all.
0: So it's also worth mentioning that this is all framed uh, by a, a frame story in which she is driving madly around New Mexico. I believe the New no, no, Mexico countryside. Uh, she's,
1: she's in upstate New York.
0: Okay, there is a New Mexico scene later. <laughs> That's too, later. But yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the initial chase begins in this upstate New York diner where. She uh, she comes in in the green hoodie, actually, um, <laughs> right. orders a cup of coffee or something. And then Channing Tatum, who's a, a fellow operative, right, a right. guy who worked with her on the Barcelona job, uh, comes in, sits down. You think that they're either boyfriend and girlfriend or or, or ex-colleagues and they're going to have some kind of a reconciliation. Instead, he suddenly throws a pot of coffee in her face and they get into this huge brawl. And that's the first moment that you realize, oh, this woman is this incredible fighter, right? right? right. Um, that scene ends with her essentially... Carjacking the car of a guy, just a random fellow who happened to be at the diner, not Channing yeah. Tatum, and taking him on this crazy joyride, uh, <laughs> expositioning all the while <laughs> about the background of what happened in Barcelona. Right, she's right. got this arm injury; she's been shot in the arm, and she's telling this guy, you know, wrap up my arm. Tight in a tourniquet while i drive and tell you about why i've carjacked you and and what happened in barcelona right and i believe that this guy named scott the guy this sort of wimpy guy <laughs> that she she kidnaps is supposed to be a proxy for the audience essentially he's the guy saying whoa, what's going on strong lady and right. then she tells him everything but i mean to me that was a really that was a really shitty proxy like i want really a better dumb. proxy than
1: that yeah like scott was was like weirdly zen about everything that was going on if i i was kept thinking to myself if I had been Scott, if I had been sitting in, you know, Woodstock, New York, enjoying my, you know, morning waffle <laughs> with my with my buddies, and all of a sudden I saw, A, like, a crazy black ops, you know, MMA-style fight in front of me, guns blazing, you know, someone gets shot, and then some, a woman who is who has Gina Carano's physique grabs me, throws me into my own car, and commands that I dress her wound, and then proceeds to tell me an incredible shaggy dog story about her, her you know, black ops work, I would be freaking out, I'd be, t- I'd be <laughs> trying to throw myself out of the car. He sort of calmly sits there, he's sort of, like, asking great questions about, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, what is this guy thinking? Like, why is he not trying to escape? Why is he not, you know, like, it, why is he not just, like, passing out from fear? That whole frame
0: story, I think it should have actually been played. Played either more for laughs because it was kind of, I mean, like, as you say, it's, it's, it's comically absurd that this would happen to someone. So the fact that it was still sort of half trying to be played for suspense, right. you know, but then throwing in a few <laughs>, laughs at Scott's expense just all seemed really weak to me.
1: I actually would say that it, this, this is something I want to talk about at the end of the podcast, but this is, an, this is one place where the movie reminded me of The Limey, which is a Steven Soderbergh film also written by Lem Dobbs, who's a screenwriter here, and also a revenge plot. And in The Limey, um, Terrence Stamp uh, plays the guy who's trying to seek revenge uh, for the, the murder of his daughter. And he comes to the United States from England and he ends up having a sort of sidekick who also sort of serves in, uh, a purpose in, in sort of teasing out some ex- important exposition. That sidekick's played by Luis Guzman who's a great character actor who's very funny. And his sort of – his relationship with Terrence Stamp, which is a really oddball thing, this like Cockney Brit talking to this Hispanic guy. They have – seemingly nothing in common but more in common than you might think that relationship is a central part of the movie and it's one of the reasons the movie works so well whereas here Scott is just this like goofy kid we don't really know anything about him we have no idea why he has so much poise under pressure Uh, and
0: you add that to the fact that Gina Carano is no Terrence Stamp by a long shot and (laughs) it's just it's not a rich relationship the Scott the Scott Mallory duo no it's not do you want to get to the end of the movie and and, and, and the the resonances with the limey that you saw there
1: right so just briefly I guess to to spoil the the ending uh, everything kind of ends up coming together where um, Mallory has a sort of forces a showdown at her father's um, home. And that's in New Mexico. That is where I think the New Mexico scenes happen. And um, she sort of knows that all the people who are chasing her know that she's going to go to New Mexico. Her dad is a weird character played by Bill Paxton. He he uh, I guess is now an an author of either sort of like airport Military airport pot boilers, or maybe military history. I wasn't able to glean whether
0: he wrote fiction or nonfiction. Yeah, I was asking the same thing. Yeah, I was
1: like, I wasn't sure from the cover, the brief shot of the cover of the book, what kind of literature he he wrote. But he also, I mean, I thought the suggestion was that he must be former military himself. That he yeah, don't
0: they even say I, I was a marine? I think he says to her at one point, "You were a marine. I was a marine." Oh, okay. Semper Fi, right? He signs the uh, book yeah, to yeah, her. Oh, Semper yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he he seems to be, kind of get. Like what she's doing and what she's up against, and so she kind of takes, um, she kind of flees to his house. Awesome house, by the way. Awesome house is like kind of cool, like desert chalet sort of uh, spot. And um, there's like a, you know, and Ewan McGregor and Channing Tatum and a couple of other um, doofuses who they work with all go there to try to take take out Mallory. And of course, Mallory sort of plays cat and mouse at them and, and essentially kills them off one by one. Um, except Ewan McGregor manages to escape. But then what? It's, yeah. such,
0: it's such. It's such. also dark and murky. What's happening there? I didn't yeah. know who shot who. He,
1: he's, when McGregor realizes that Channing Tatum is kind of like his eyes are the scales are falling from his eyes, and he's really realizing that McGregor's in the wrong, and that and that I think Channing Tatum had a soft spot for Mallory. Uh, and so he's sort of about to switch sides, and then he gets whacked by. Uh, I will Ewan say
0: McGregor. that in in comparison to to the Mallory Kane character, Channing Tatum comes off as master thespian. It's <laughs> it is one of the best roles I've seen him in.
1: Yeah, I think that, I think that's true, but I think it's probably only by comparison. Um, so wait, so now I'm blanking. Owen McGregor, es- oh, Owen McGregor escapes. They, it, Mallory is not able to ke- kill him in New Mexico. He goes to real Mexico. And is, like, hiding out in, like, a, a beach town in Mexico and sort of takes, decides to take a jog on the beach. And that's where Mallory ultimately tracks him down, right?
0: Right. So he's just walking on the beach. And there is something also comical but at that moment where he thinks, oh, I couldn't be further removed from civilization. And then who should appear in <laughs> skin-tight, black, you know, kick-ass gear than Mallory Kane? And on the beach? And
1: mo- that was one, of, one moment, and there were several, where I felt like the movie was trying to be funny because the shot – is framed. So you you basically you're watching Ewan McGregor look out to sea. He's sort of looking into the camera and you're sort of, the cameras sort of hovering over the ocean and he's sort of looking out into the water. And then in the background, all of a sudden you see this little black spot and they're like, Oh, that's Gina Carano. And she's running towards him and he, he's looking out to sea. It doesn't hear her coming, but like the amount of time for which she is running, like it's not, it's kind of goofy. Like there's, there's like multiple seconds where you see her running, running, running. and He's not looking over his shoulder. <laughs> like I actually thought it was kind of a comical scene, like one that was almost making fun of the conventions of, the action movie like how could he not realize that she's coming like how does he not hear the sand being kicked up by that her boots could,
0: that could have been i mean that was one of the other moments as we were saying at the beginning that i'm just not sure to what extent this is being played for laughs or not and if it was going to be i wish it would have just gone out there on a limb more and been a, a spoof of an action thriller
1: exactly like it could have been a it could have been a spoof of a sort of born style like i'm impossible to kill um movie but I don't know. It didn't feel like it ever quite went that far in that direction so that you kind of knew that's that's what's going on. Maybe
0: if you were an incredible connoisseur of, of, you know, sort of B-grade action schlock movies, you would see more of what this movie's trying to do with them. I don't know. Because with the music at certain moments, I really didn't like the music in general. In general, I don't tend to like Soderbergh's music, actually. He's a little too ambient for me and he has to have music all the time. And this music was, to me, a little bit generic action music. But at times I thought he did a funny thing where he would start it really suddenly. Almost, you know, the way that a, a Hong Kong movie or a porn movie will just suddenly throw a bunch of music at you. To, sh- to shift the mood,
1: yeah, no, that's true. So anyway, McGregor <laughs> and Mallory, they kind of get into like a you know a fist fight. Ultimately, he's sort of running away from her through a series of rocks by the water, and he just, like severely like twists his ankle between two rocks. Looks like he's broken his ankle, and he falls down. At which point, he kind of he's basically you know he's
0: he's trapped in a, tide, trapped pool in a tide, tide pool, and the tides coming in.
1: Yeah, and so at that point, he delivers like a long. Another sort of long flashback piece of exposition in which he explains essentially everything that happened in the movie to Mallory and to us, the audience. Clarifying some things, but not everything. I mean, it it all kind of went by quickly. Some of the stuff we already sort of knew, other things.
0: Essentially, you get to see the bad guys behind the scene in, yeah. his, in his flashback, right? You see them rubbing their palms together and making their evil plans. Exactly.
1: Um, but it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of a lot of exposition right at the very end of the movie. And, you know, some of those flashback scenes are okay. I like the scene between um, McGregor and Fassbender when they're like really kind of making their plans. Um, but, you know, it's sort of like, at that point, I almost didn't care what the details of the plot were. You Honestly, know. by
0: the end of this movie, I was just sort of praying, let it end. And it's only yeah. a 92-minute movie. I mean, it should be <laughs> exactly. flying by at that speed. But what, what were the Limey parallels at the end? Because oh, so, I haven't seen the Limey in so long. So
1: there were two things that struck me as being weirdly very similar to the ending of the Limey. The first is that the Limey ends—this is obviously spoilers for people who haven't seen the Limey. The Limey also ends where with the person uh, who is seeking revenge, in that case Terrence Stamp, um, cornering all the bad guys in a, uh, a beautiful house, uh, beautiful isolated house. So there's like another kind of thing where you have all the bad guys in one house and the and the re- revenge seeker is kind of playing uh, around the edges and kind of taking them out one by one. So that was like a very direct parallel. And then- the other parallel that's even weirder, I think, is that the limey ends with the uh, ostensible bad guy Peter Peter Fonda running on the beach away from the revenge seeker Terrence Stamp and twisting his ankle in the rocks and falling and breaking breaking his ankle. So it's like essentially the same exact um, coda, although in in the limey Terrence Stamp. Basically, decides not to kill Peter Fonda. He has this sort of realization that uh, well, it's, I won't get into it. But he decides not to to kill Peter Fonda. Whereas in in Haywire. The strong suggestion is that, she, is that Mallory leaves Ewan McGregor for dead. She's like, the tide's coming in. You clearly can't move. And she just walks away and kind of lets the ocean do the work for her. Right. Whereas, she gets
0: her flashback and she takes off.
1: Yeah. Whereas in the, in the Limey, it's it's more a story about sort of Terrence Stamp's own sort of voyage of self-discovery. Uh, and he kind of realizes he doesn't need to exact this revenge that has so consumed him for years, which I think is a more interesting, you know, way of ending a picture. But. It was strange to me that Lem Dobbs decided to have those, you know, such similar endings to these to these two movies, and yet the movies, I don't know, for me at least, are, are kind of worlds apart in terms of quality and execution. And I had this cockamamie theory that this that uh, I wanted to share with the world, but <laughs> it doesn't—it's probably not worthy of print. But I will—I'll use the spoiler special to uh, to throw it out there. One crazy theory for what's going on in uh, in Haywire is that if. People uh, who are fans of The Limey know that the DVD of The Limey has this amazing commentary track where Lem Dobbs and Steven Soderbergh uh, talk about the making of the movie. And Dobbs is like clearly like unhappy with a bunch of choices that Soderbergh made uh, in terms of shooting the movie, in terms of kind of lopping off parts of the screenplay. They, and
0: they argue about it. And on they the argue about track? it. Oh, Re- how yeah, great. It's,
1: it's one of the great commentary tracks on any on any DVD. And and part of it, one of the reasons it's so great is that it's so contentious. And I don't know, watching The Limey and listening to the commentary track, to me, it always seemed that. So Soderbergh made the right choices, that, that Dobbs is kind of standing up for, for what he had on the page, but that Soderbergh kind of had a vision for the movie that was better than, than Dobbs's. And I, I, I sort of was laughing to myself walking out of Haywire thinking, what if what we just saw was sort of a 92-minute refutation of Lem Dobbs's position <laughs> on the limey commentary track? He's like, you think you were right? You think if I just shoot your script, it'll be a better movie? All right, I'll just shoot your script next time. We'll see which one's better. And I think it's pretty clear that Steven Soderbergh was right that the light his approach in the Limey was the way to go because haywire just does not work as well. That's my theory.
0: I love it. I'm gonna <laughs> go with it because it answers all the questions I had about this movie. It's it's essentially it will just it will just stand as Yes, it's a it's a I told you so movie from yes. <laughs> from Soderbergh to Dobbs.
1: Right, Soderbergh is like just crazy enough that he might might do something like that. I mean, he makes movies so like facilely that he'd be like, all right, whatever, I'll take six months just to prove Dobbs is right. Dobbs he, wrong. He's so
0: prolific he can afford he can yeah. afford to, to throw away one. I've whole made movie all these great that. movies.
1: No one's going to hold this one against me. I'll make another. You know, so anyway, I, I posit that if he wants to make a sort of deathbed, deathbed declaration, <laughs> then that's what that movie was about. You know, years from now, I'll be vindicated. But I, I don't. I'm probably not right. It's probably just a movie that he kind of mailed in.
0: All right, well, Soderbergh is prolific enough that we'll probably be sitting here within the next six months talking about another one of his movies. But thanks for coming with me to this one.
1: Uh, My pleasure. I look forward to that.
0: Our producer is Chris Wade. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. And our editor is Melanie McAfee. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.
1: Step into the world of power,
0: loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family